we see how faithful you are. How long you have borne along your promise. So empower us to read your word, to understand it, and to see you standing behind it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me welcome you to the Old Testament survey class. This course is going to be studying the age-running story of God's redemptive purposes as, as it begins in the book of Genesis. And so we'll go from Genesis 1, in a real sense, we'll tell the story from Genesis 1 all the way up to Matthew chapter 1. And it, this class really operates on the conviction that the Old Testament is not God's Word 1.0, whereas the New Testament is God's Word 2.0. Now this... This class operates on the conviction that the New Testament grows out of the riches of the Old Testament. Most of your Bible is found on the Old Testament side of the divide. 77% of the Bible, three quarters of the Bible is in the Old Testament. And so when you, you know, even when you read the New Testament, there are over 2,700 allusions to the Old Testament in the New Testament, which when you average that out to 27 books, that's 100 New Test Old Testament allusions in each book of the New Testament. When you factor in the fact that a lot of those books in the New Testament are really short, Jude's one page, Third John is one page, Philemon is one page, a lot of Paul's epistles are small, you've got lots, you've got a New Testament that loves the Old Testament, that grows out of the Old Testament. And so when we land in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, there's a very real sense in which you're reading the fourth chapter in God's unfolding story of redemption. And you never do that. You never just jump to the fourth chapter of a story. We, we believe that that New Testament story grows out of the Old Testament story in such a way that to lack an understanding of the Old Testament will reduce our ability to appreciate the riches of the truth of the New Testament. So that's why we're going to be moving forward in this way, that we can't fully appreciate the message of the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. It would almost be like watching Star Wars and not knowing the name of the guy with the shiny black helmet. You know, and there you, you fast forward to the scene and there's the guy with the shiny black helmet and he's fighting this young guy and you don't know him either. either. And he says, Luke, I am your father. And Luke yells, no, and you don't yell no in that moment. And the reason is you lack context. You don't know the backstory, you don't know the young kid, and you don't know the guy in the shiny helmet. And if you know those things, then you yell no as well. Because you've come to this climactic moment, and you've come with backstory. You know what has led here. There's a very real sense in which when we come to the New Testament, we have arrived, to be sure, at the climactic moment of the redemptive story. But if we don't have backstory, it doesn't feel like a climax. So we need the Old Testament to gain steam and to give us a sense of where the New Testament is going. So the goals in the class are threefold. One, to memorize and pursue a better grasp of nine turning points of Old Testament history. My, my hope is that before we're done today, we will start memorizing the nine eras of Old Testament history and start memorizing associated characters with each of those nine eras of Old Testament history. Number two, that we would see the big story of how God is advancing his plan, how the Old Testament points beyond itself to the coming Messiah, to Christ. Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, these scriptures testify of me. And 
so if we believe that Jesus knew what he was talking about when he read the Old Testament and said the main idea of the Old Testament actually is referring to what I would come and accomplish, then what we want to do is not just get lost in details and circling around in genealogies, but we want to see how those details and genealogies anticipate the coming one who is the central character of the story of the whole Bible, not just the Old Testament. And third, just that we would become more passionate lovers of God's word. That, that the, new, the New Testament, the more I read the Old Testament, the more the New Testament goes on fire. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful story, and it begins earlier than the New Testament. So we're going to study this together. Now, the class is called Old Testament Survey, uh, and there's, a, there's, you know, that's not necessarily the most creative title. Uh, what could be more boring than attending a class called Old Testament Survey? I mean, survey is not necessarily an exciting word. If somebody calls you on the phone and says that they're going to conduct a survey, otherwise courteous and nice people hang up on them. So it, it's not necessarily the best way to title a series, but we're going we're gonna to walk through this survey. And in, ser- in, in seeking to answer the question, why study the Old Testament, I want to provide a few answers that are going to frame the rest of our study. And then before we're done, I'm going to try to tell the Old Testament story and review these nine uh, eras of Old Testament history. So we got a lot to get done. We're going to be flying this morning, and we'll see if I can end on time and thus not incur Pastor Peter Davidson's wrath. Uh, All right, so number one, why study the Old Testament? Number one, the Old Testament introduces us to God. If we neglect the study of the Old Testament, our view of God will at best be incomplete, and it may be distorted. The biggest part of God's autobiography, the Bible is God's autobiography. God is introducing himself to his covenant people in the whole of the Bible. And the biggest part of God's autobiography is found in the first three quarters of the Bible, namely the Old Testament. So we want to be thoroughly versed in this because God is saying things that are not superfluous or redundant or unnecessary. They're not all covered. You can't get the full portrait of God by just reading the New Testament. The Old Testament is not redundant. And there are things that God says about himself and ways in which he says those things that are powerful. The Old Testament is not just a series of little interesting stories. The Old Testament is God preaching. And this probably goes without saying, but God can preach. God is preaching. And the topic that God is preaching in the Old Testament is God. It is is God preaching a sermon on himself. God in each of the stories is is preaching about his sovereignty, his glory, his purity, his holiness, his wrath against sin, his mercy for sinners. He is preaching powerfully on every page of the Old Testament. I think that that will help us create and cultivate a desire to read God's word. Look at this quote from Dillard Longman in their book, The Introduction to the Old Testament. It says, Thus, biblical history is not an objective reporting of purely human events. It is an impassioned account of God's acts in history as he works in the world to save his people. So these words in the Bible that's before you are words from God about God. 
and actually in, in Exodus 31, you don't have to turn there, but you find the first written revelation from God to his people. This is the first time God goes on record in writing and gives it to his covenant people. And it says this, Exodus 31, 18, And he, that is God, gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. This tablet was given to Moses before Moses wrote Genesis. This is the first written revelation of God to his covenant people in the history of the world. This is a significant moment. This began the written record of the Old Testament, beginning with the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Look at this quote from Edmund Clowney. He writes, To know the Lord their God, Israel had to know him as their creator. To know their calling, the people needed to know the story of their father Abraham and his calling. It was also essential for them to know God's rule over the nations, the nations that were to be blessed through the new nation begun from the son of Abraham. So God gives Moses, God carves a slab out of a real locatable mountain. You can Google Earth, Mount Sinai, and see the mountain that God took a chunk out of and wrote on, and that was the first part of the canon. And in the very first sentence of God's written revelation, when God goes on record for his people and says, this is who I am, he begins with a personal introduction. The very first words on that tablet of stone were, I am the Lord your God. And thus the rest of the Bible is God saying, here's what the Lord your God is like. In the beginning, the Lord your God created the heavens and the earth. And Genesis chapter 1 begins to unfurl before us. This is a covenant document. It is a covenant God communicating to his people. And that's why we've named this class. It's this unfolding story of God and his people. Because the Bible begins by God saying to his people in Israel who have just left Egypt, this is who I am. Let me tell you what I'm like. In Romans 3, we're going to look at verse 1 in just a second. It's interesting because Paul is underscoring the importance of the Old Testament in particular. He has, at this point, already argued that both Jews, that is those who are of the ancestry of Abraham, both Jews and Gentiles are under the judgment of a holy God. And, and Paul says there will be no partiality with God. And what he means by that is is that God is going to judge unbelieving and unfaithful, unrepentant Israel, children of Abraham, just like he's going to judge unrepentant, unbelieving pagan nations. And he already can anticipate where his Jewish kinsmen, his brothers from the household of Israel, where they're going to go with that. They're going to object to that. Paul knows that, and he anticipates that objection. He can anticipate what they're going to be thinking. They're going to be thinking, wait, so Paul, so being children of Abraham, are you saying that that has no value? What advantage has the Jew if there's no partiality at all? Haven't we been shown some special favor? Wouldn't you grant at least that? Paul, look at Romans chapter 3. If you can get there quickly, I'm going to read it to you.
Romans 3.1, then what advantage has the Jew, Paul asks, for them? Or what is the value of circumcision? Paul moves ahead. Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul says, of course you've been shown special favor from God. Exhibit A, the Old Testament. You have an Old Testament. You have God revealing himself and going on paper and writing letters in stone and giving them to you so that unlike the nations around you who are stumbling in idolatry and unable to arrive at any firm knowledge of the one true and living God through their sincere religious zeal or their spiritual intuition, they are unable to arrive at a firm knowledge of God. You, on the other hand, children of Abraham, have stared into the face of God in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. God has not left you to stumble in the darkness. He's given you covenant writing revelation. And so the value of the Old Testament in Paul's eyes in that very moment is seen to be tremendous. This is a God, the God who's revealing himself and introducing himself to us, is revealing himself not in the ways of of sort of near ancient religions where, or, or philosophical religious environments. He, this is not one hand clapping Confucius type of stuff. This is a God in real history, in real locatable geographical places. God shows up, you read from Genesis, and you find God touching down in Ur of the Chaldees, in Assyria, in Egypt, in Bethel, in Hebron, in Michmash, at the Red Sea. This is God, the living creator of all things, and he is on the ground in Palestine, working in real people's lives, speaking through bushes on the side of a mountain. God is directing a basket down the Nile River. God is acting in real human history in powerful powerful ways. And this makes the Old Testament really sing for me. I, I, sometimes I'll, I'll, in reading through a passage of the Old Testament, I'll go and try to find pictures of the place where this is. So I did that this week. And I looked up a picture of Mount Sinai. And I just looked at that mountain and thought, there's a slab of rock that's missing from Mount Sinai that God wrote on. God was there. And I look at a picture of the Jordan River. God led his people across that river. You can walk in the water where God led his people. It's a fascinating thing that our God has stepped into history, stepped into time. And in all of that history, we are seeing theology in action, theology in motion. He's revealing himself to real people in real history, and the bulk of that revelation of God in history is found in the Old Testament. Number two, Old Testament stories are part of our covenant heritage. They are part of our history. Now, there are certain golden stories that we might say American children are virtually required to know, right? Little Red Riding Hood, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, right? You, your parenting badge will be revoked if your children don't know those stories. Because they have been so long loved and treasured in our particular culture. Now, the golden collection of stories for God's people 
are ancient stories, and most of those golden stories in the golden collection are found in the Old Testament. Anybody ever heard of Daniel and the lion's den? David and Goliath. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are familiar stories. And I love to think of Jesus as a little boy. And, and his father gathers him around and they start telling these stories. And Jesus would never have known Hansel and Gretel. He would have never known Goldilocks and the three bears. But I can almost guarantee every time Joseph gathered the family in the living room and said, once upon a time, there was a boy named David. Jesus' eyes lit up. And he and his half-brothers were like, I love this one. This is great. These are the golden stories of God's people. And they are not only stories, they are true stories. And they are not only true stories, they are our stories. They are the stories of the heritage of God's people. And so we want to know them. What do the ten plagues have to do with your life in the workaday world of the 21st century? Quite simply, you wouldn't be a Christian today if Israel died in Egypt. What is the story when Moses is there and God says, stand aside, Moses, and I'm going to blast my people at the base of Mount Sinai? What does that story have to do with us when Moses stands in the gap between the just wrath of God and a sinful people and he foreshadows the one who would come and effectively mediate and stand between the wrath of God and sinful people. What does that have to do with us? If Moses had moved aside and God had blasted those Hebrews at the base of Mount Sinai, you would be dead in your transgressions and sins. Because somewhere at the base of Mount Sinai was the ancestor of Jesus Christ in that family. And all the promises to Abraham would have been null and void. And humanity's future would only be one of destruction at the hands of a just God. These stories have everything to do with you and me. They are our stories. This is part of our history. If we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, this is part of our history. Galatians 3, 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. What a statement. That is a staggering statement in light of the Old Testament. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Are you kidding me? There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is staggering too. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That is a massive statement in light of Old Testament history. Paul is saying... Jesus was the offspring of Abraham through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. When God made the promise to Abraham and said, through you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, the offspring that God had in his mind back in Genesis 12 was Jesus. And Jesus would do something. He would be born in the line of Abraham and there would be something that Jesus would do eventually in time. 2,000 years after Abraham that Jesus would do that would make it so that blessing poured out from Israel to all the nations through the gospel so that any who turn from sin and put their trust in Jesus are not just brought kind of into the secondary family of God but are one in Christ with the ancient story of God's people. We've been brought in, Gentiles, full 
fully brought in to God's covenant family. It's a staggering statement. Number three, the Old Testament points to Christ. Jesus says in Luke 24, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. If you backed up from that verse to verse 21, you would see Jesus' disciples kicking dust up, depressed, discouraged. We had hoped, they said. We had hoped that this Jesus was going to be the one who would redeem Israel. We thought he was the Messiah, but now he's dead. So the promises of God apparently aren't going to be fulfilled through him. And what Jesus does, note Jesus' response is very interesting. First of all, he rebukes them for not believing and reading correctly the Old Testament. If you had read, valued, and believed the Old Testament, you would not be kicking up dust. You would be expecting everything that's happened. Didn't the scriptures prophesy that the son would suffer? that the servant of the Lord would suffer in Isaiah 53? Didn't you read Isaiah 53? He's faulting them for their inadequate reading of the Old Testament. And secondly, what Jesus does is he teaches the first and best Old Testament survey class in human history. He walks them through the Old Testament and says, and that also is about me, and this sacrifice is about me. And in Genesis 22, when Abraham said to Isaac, the Lord will provide for himself a sacrifice for the burnt offering. That too was about me. And he walked them through the entire Old Testament story and pointed it back to the central figure that was anticipated in each one of those events. So we cannot deal adequately with any Old Testament passage until we've learned to relate that passage and that event to the coming of the Messiah to Jesus. That's how we're supposed to read the Old Testament. And until we've done that, we haven't rightly read the Old Testament. And this is, I hate to burst any bubbles, and I don't want to do that, but this is where a lot of children's Bibles and veggie tales disappoints. Because the Bible is not a series of stories that just give us morals where we're supposed to come away from, you know, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego tells us not to be afraid of bullies um, like Nebuchadnezzar. That's not the main point of the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story. The, the story of David and Goliath tells us that little people can do big things. They can fight big giants. That's, that, there again, that's not the main point of David and Goliath. The story of David and Bathsheba taking Uriah's wife, is not a story that tells us to stop being selfish. That there's something much bigger going on. It, that really, if you do that, the Bible becomes a Christian version of Aesop's fables, where you, you have stories and details, and the moral of the story, kids, is be better. Be like Daniel. Be like this person. Don't be like that person. Be like this person. It's much bigger than that. We should, let me just say, we should derive lessons from the characters of the Old Testament. That's not a problem inherently, but that's not the main emphasis and the main point of the Old Testament narratives. If that's all we do, we're missing the point. Christianity then would become a message about mean people becoming nicer people. 
and it's, it's far deeper than that. Christianity is a story of a gloriously holy God saving rebellious sinners by providing his own mediator who would die in our place as our substitute and bring us into the kingdom of God forever. It's, it's a far richer story than let's be better people. Let's clean up our act. All the promises of God that were made to Adam. This is what we're going to be exploring in coming weeks. All the promises that were made to Adam and to Abraham and to David and the rest, they find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. They anticipate his coming. So, let's review the story of the Old Testament. There are a couple of passages here. That's going to be part of your homework, to read these passages and see how apostles, when they were preaching in the book of Acts, they preached out of the Old Testament narrative. They preached not out of one particular story, but out of the one unfolding story of God in the Old Testament. And they're picking up on the very kinds of things that we're going to be reviewing this morning. So this morning, what we're going to do before we even get started with that is to learn a song. And it is admittedly a cheesy, hokey song, um, because I I've made it up and taught it to my kids so that we could memorize the nine eras of the Old Testament and nine figures from the Old Testament. And so, because it's hokey and it's a run through the Old Testament, I call it the O.T. Hokey. We sing the O.T. Hokey. I mean, you could turn yourself around if you want to do that. We can, we can do that too. Nine eras of Old Testament history, and I don't have a keyboard up here, so I'll just go a cappella, and then you can join me, okay? Creation patriarch, exodus, look at your conquest, judges, kingdom, exile, return, silence, sing it, creation, patriarch, exodus, conquest, judges, kingdom, exile, return, silence, again, creation, patriarch, exodus, conquest, judges, Kingdom, ex Now let's do the names. Adam, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Samson, David, Daniel, Ezra, Pharisees. Again, Adam, Abraham, Moses, Joshua. You're getting it. Samson, David, Daniel, Ezra, Pharisees. You got it. All right, so just go over that, review that, sing the O.T. Hokey this week, and we're going to be reviewing that in coming weeks. I think the helpfulness, one of the helpful things about that is when you land in some passage in the Bible, what I'm looking for when I land in some passage in the Old Testament is where am I? Where's north and south? What has happened? What's about to happen? Who's on the ground right now? Are things going well for Israel? Are they in their homeland? Are Cain and Abel scuffling somewhere around here? Or is David on the throne? Where are we in Old Testament history? And a lot of times, if you read long enough, you can start to discover creation, patriarch, exodus, conquest. No, 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 that, because that's all past. This is referring back to the exodus. So we know we're beyond there. And then it, it might name a king. Okay, so we're somewhere in the kingdom, divided kingdom era. Right, so then we're able to kind of get our bearings in what is otherwise a dense jungle of details in the Old Testament. So sing the song, and next week we'll, 
we'll be progressing along. The Bible's message from start all the way to Revelation is in one sentence put this way by Graham Goldsworthy. God is bringing his people into his place under his rule. And that story is also unfolding in the Old Testament. So let me tell you the story of the Old Testament beginning in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And everything that God made was good. And the crowning work of God's creation was when he made man, male and female, in his own image, reflecting his character. And he made them so that they could enjoy ever-living relationship with him, living under his rule, under his benevolent kingship and authority, and living in the joyful friendship of God, walking in the cool of the garden. Though everything was good in the beginning and God's people were in his place under his rule, things turned south. Adam and Eve, there was a serpent in the garden that deceived them and Adam and Eve made a grab for godness, a grab for the throne and the knowledge that belongs to God alone. And in doing that, they broke God's holy law. God had given them one law and they broke that law with a high hand and God came and curses came on them and on the whole of creation. They were separated from God. Their hearts were darkened. And curses ran through all of God's created world, through the whole of creation, and through anyone who would come through them. Any of their seed or their offspring would inherit that irreconciled relationship with God. They would be exiled from God's place. They would be sent out of Eden. In the midst of judgment, however, God also brought a surprising word of hope. That there was going to be a seed of the woman who would come and he would crush the head of the serpent who had deceived them. Now, he wouldn't crush it in a way that he would escape unscathed. When he would crush the head of the serpent, his heel would be bruised. In other words, the seed of this woman, whenever he came, the seed of this woman would triumph through his own suffering. This was in Genesis chapter 3. Sin continued to flourish until God brought judgment to the entire world through the great flood. We're only six chapters in to the Bible where two words of great judgment have fallen on sinful humanity through the great flood. There again, judgment would not be the only word. God would not decimate the entire earth. He would keep his promise to Adam and Eve. There would still be a serpent conquering seed because a family was preserved in the ark. And all around the ark was destruction. And inside that ark, there was salvation for God's people. They were in his place, under his rule, in his blessing, and under his protection in the ark. Patterns are already in place in the first 11 chapters because another judgment falls in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Patterns are in place. Human rebellion against God is a constant feature. God's judgment against human rebellion is another constant feature. But despite human sinfulness, the mercy of God and the covenant-keeping promises of God are also beginning to lock into place, and we're seeing all those patterns emerging, which leads us to the patriarchal period in Genesis chapter 12. 
God comes to Abram. It's about 2,000 years before Christ. Abram is an idol worshiper, and he has a barren wife, and God comes to him and makes promises. Abraham didn't ask for God to come. God initiated a covenant with Abraham and began to just say to Abraham, I am your exceeding great reward, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to give you land, sons, family, and not only that, but through your family, through your line, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. He was going to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. Abraham eventually had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Israel had 12 sons. Those 12 sons would be known as the 12 tribes of Israel. One particular son of Jacob was shown particular favor. This is the famous story of Joseph and the coat of many colors. And the other brothers got jealous of Joseph and his coat and the favor that the coat symbolized. And so they captured him and they conspired to sell him into slavery. They sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt of all places. And in a series of remarkable and amazing providences, Joseph rises to a position of tremendous prominence and power and influence in Egypt. He's known by the Pharaoh and favored by the king of the then known world. Not coincidentally, back in Canaan, where his family still is, a famine is coming. It's been going on actually for two years already, but it's going to continue for five more years. And if it had not been for Joseph rising to power in Egypt, and if it had not been for Joseph offering forgiveness and a safe haven and refuge under the prosperity of Egypt, if it hadn't been for that, Joseph's family members all would have died in the famine in Canaan. Now, Joseph's brothers can't die in Canaan. They can't die in Canaan because one of his brothers is named Judah. And if Judah and his family dies in Canaan, the serpent conquering seed of the woman will never arrive. So God is going to keep his promises to Eve and to Adam by seeing to it that Joseph is sold into slavery, rises to prominence in Egypt, offers forgiveness to his family, says, come and stay here, and you will be provided for by the richest kingdom in the known world. They live in relative prosperity in Egypt for hundreds of years. Fast forward, this is the end of the book of Genesis, and Joseph dies, chapter 50. When you get to Exodus, we've fast forwarded about 400 years. And now the Pharaoh who's in power has forgotten about the story of the wonderful friendship between Joseph's family, Jacob's family, and Egypt. And he sees these people multiplying to scary degrees. And he says, I don't want them to get a thought that they can rise up and overtake the kingdom. There are so many of them. If they get that thought, it's possible they could pull it off. And so he subjugates God's people in Egypt and makes them slaves in Egypt. So now Jacob's offspring are serving the Pharaoh. They cry out to God, and God hears, and Moses is born. And he grows up, and eventually he delivers God's people out from under Pharaoh, out from under the reign of the bondage of the Egyptian empire. And God brings them through the Red Sea, and then he brings them to the base of Mount Sinai. And there he has 
a sort of destination marriage with his people. This is not going to be a big family anymore that God is just really kind to. This is going to be a constituted nation with a constitution document, namely the Ten Commandments. And God is saying in this moment, you are now a nation and I am your king. And God is bringing this nation of people that he has favored since the days of Abraham. He's bringing them into his place under his rule. The story is continuing. Those patterns are still continuing. But so is the pattern of human sinfulness. Because when Moses comes down from Sinai, there they are worshiping a golden calf. And God still relentlessly is drawing them to the promised land that he's promised to them. And they come to the threshold of the promised land and they see the grass and the hills and all of that. And and they send in these spies and the spies come back and only two of them say, we can take this. God can get us through this. And every other spy in there says, we can't handle them. There are giants. There are big, thick walls. We can't do this. And thus the nation votes for unbelief votes against God and his power to rescue them and bring them into the promised land. And so they circle in their unbelief in the wilderness for 40 more years until that entire unbelieving generation dies off, except for Joshua and Caleb who believed God. And so they come back around 40 years later, Joshua, Caleb, and the rest of Israel. Moses himself goes up on a hill, looks into the promised land, and dies. And Joshua takes over. Joshua's going to be the one who leads God's people. Yeshua, Joshua is going to bring the people into his place under his rule. And this time, they go in. And the walls of Jericho came crumbling down. God demonstrates his grace to his people, his power to rescue them and to get the job done and to keep his promises. And once they come into here, this begins the period of the judges. Not long after Joseph, rather, Joshua and his contemporaries, after they died, not long after that, Israel became wayward in their hearts again and they went after foreign gods of nations. And this had been warned in Deuteronomy. When you get into that land, you're going to see nations and you're going to see their prosperity and you're going to be prospering yourself and you're going to be tempted to worship their gods. Don't do that. Remain faithful to me. And that's not what they did. And Judges has these haunting words. And there arose another generation after the faithful generation that knew not God. And their hearts went after idols. And during this period of the Judges, God used surrounding nations to afflict and discipline his people. They didn't win all their battles. They lost some of them decisively. This was the period of the Judges. And these Judges don't picture Wapner and Judge Judy. All right, these, This is more... Um, William Wallace. I mean, these, these judges are political military leaders. That's their office, and they're, they're basically heroes that God raises up at various times to conquer the lands around them and to protect the people. But Gideon, Samson, these are some of the names of the judges. But th- these heroes were blemished, and their victories were temporary. And sort of a banner over that entire period, Judges 17, 6 said, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel had rejected God's kingship, and the way that she did that was by saying, We want a human king like the nations around us. They all have a king that they can look at, 
a king with a real throne that you can knock on. And we want that kind of king. Everybody else has one. Why can't we have one? They ask for a king, and God gives them a king. And the first king is anointed by the last judge. Samuel is well known in the Old Testament. Samuel is both a prophet. He won't be the last prophet. There will be many more prophets. But he is the last judge. And this judge will anoint the very first king of Israel, King Saul. Saul was unfaithful to God, disobedient to God, and his dynasty began and ended with him. Jonathan never rose to Saul's throne. And God, in that moment, went to find a king who would be a king after his own heart. And that's when we come to the moment of King David. King David was installed as king. He came from the line of Judah. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and eventually David. Despite Israel's pagan and idolatrous motivation in seeking a human king, God had purposed to install a king who would govern the people in righteousness and who would protect them from encroaching nations. This is a massively significant moment in Old Testament history perhaps rivaled by the Abrahamic covenant. When God says to Abraham, your offspring will bring blessings to the nations, that's a massive moment, the Abrahamic covenant. This one is like unto that covenant. This is the Davidic covenant. And God, like the promises that he made to Abraham and his offspring, is going to make promises to David and his offspring. He says in 2 Samuel 7, 12, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. This is David's offspring. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And there's a sense in which this is clearly referring to Solomon. The Solomon is able to build the temple for God's name, in which God's name would be proclaimed. But ultimately, this refers to something way beyond Solomon. The New Testament says there one greater than Solomon has come, and he would build a house for God's name. He would build the church against which the gates of hell would not prevail. He would build a house for God's name. And Hebrews 1.5 tells us that this promise in 2 Samuel 7 ultimately points to Jesus. The next 80 years, this period of David and Solomon's reign, marks the brief golden age of Israel. The borders of Israel expand. The prosperity of Israel goes through the roof. David's son Solomon builds the temple, but despite the relative peacefulness and prosperity of this period, there are already cracks forming at the foundation of the kingdom of Israel because Solomon's heart is going after the nations. Even though he's the one responsible for building the temple, his heart turned away from the Lord. He married foreign pagan wives and began to cease curbing the growth of idolatry in his kingdom. And his sons were not faithful to God. And after Solomon's death, the kingdom is broken. It's divided in two. Ten tribes of Israel, ten of the sons that were in the line of Jacob, ten go with the northern kingdom, and that kingdom will be called Israel, and two go with the southern kingdom, and that will be called the kingdom of Judah. Now they are divided. And that eventually leads to exile. 
the northern kingdom quickly descended into idolatry and total apostasy. And God had warned them through prophets like Hosea and Amos, but they didn't heed God's word. And once again, like rebellious Adam and Eve, they were led out of God's place, out from under God's rule, into exile, and they were captured by Syria in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom of Judah fared better, lasted a couple hundred more years, had some good moments, had some good kings. They maintained faithfulness to the line of David. There were only Davidic kings on the throne in the south. The throne of Judah was only for Davidic kings. But despite the warnings of prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, they too eventually turned away and were conquered and led away from the promised land into Babylon in 586 B.C. And, and that was an unbelievably dark day. In light of the history that had led them there, these people heard the promises that God had made to Abraham. They heard the promises God had made to David. The promise made to David was that David's throne would never be empty. And this dark day, David's throne was not only empty, it had been toppled. And the temple was a smoking heap. The beautiful temple that displayed and reflected this glorious God to them was, was in ashes. This is when Lamentations is written. You read Lamentations with this in view, and you'll understand why does this feel so dark? It's because the temple is in ruins and David's throne is vacant. And we never dreamed that day would come 500 years after David. They wouldn't remain in exile. Seventy years later, God rescued them from captivity through the vision and leadership of a man named Ezra. And the people began various tricklings. They began to come back to the homeland, allowed to come back to the homeland. The temple was rebuilt. It wasn't as glorious as Solomon's temple, but it was, it was something. And Nehemiah led the effort to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They were still, though, under foreign rulers. They were still in occupied territory, and they were still wayward in their hearts. And Malachi was the last prophet to speak to God's people in the Old Testament. And he spoke in a common theme about Israel's wayward worship. That theme had been going on from the very beginning. And Malachi said, your worship is still wayward, and you turn away from the God of your fathers. And that's when God hung up the phone. God had spoken through the prophets to his people for centuries. And this is the first moment that they heard the dial tone on the other end. And they heard that dial tone for 400 years. Malachi's last words, though, once again, it's not only judgment. Malachi's last words in his really scathing word of prophetic material in that book is intriguing. It's an intriguing promise. He says, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. What is that about? Ending your book with, I will send Elijah the prophet. That leads to the period of silence. God's people didn't hear another word from God for 400 years. And then a wild man came from out of the wilderness with the spirit of Elijah. Anybody know that wild man's name? John the Baptist and Jesus identified that this John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Malachi's 400 year old prophecy he is that Elijah 
He is preparing you for the coming day, the great and awesome day of the Lord. And John the Baptist said, prepare the way of the Lord. And John the Baptist is regarded as the greatest of the prophets. You might say, why? I mean, his career was short. He doesn't have any canonical material. He isn't writing anything in the scriptures. His people are quoting him. The reason he's regarded as the greatest of the prophets is that unlike all the other great prophets who had come before and their message was one day, one day, one day Messiah will come and John the Baptist had the untold privilege of pointing his finger and saying, there he is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the expectation of the Old Testament. Behold the one who will bring to pass all of the promises to Abraham and to God's people. It's interesting that in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus is identified in specific ways. He's identified Jesus Christ, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, comma, the son of Abraham. Remember the Abrahamic covenant? The son of Abraham, comma, the son of David, the offspring through whom the world will be blessed and all nations will know the gospel. The one through whom that will come, is here. And he's the son of David, the one who will sit on David's throne forever. The throne will be occupied again. The serpent-conquering seed had arrived in flesh. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, wants us to get the connection between the Old Testament story and Emmanuel, Jesus, God in the flesh. We're introduced to Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the child of promise, the heir of David's throne, the serpent conquering seed of the woman. He would be bruised, but that bruising would crush the serpent. He would succeed where all the others had failed. He would bring God's people into God's place under God's rule. That's the story we're going to be exploring next week and in the following weeks. So let's come back. Thanks. You see your, note your homework. I've got homework for you. So if you want to get more out of the class, do the homework, all right? <laughs>